but I knew in that moment that this this is not something that I was making up. This is this is God, and He is a powerful God, and this is what I was missing. So then it's been a journey of walking walking with Him and learning and growing and making mistakes and getting up back up again. Anything else? And at some point in there, we got married. Yeah, I got two kids. So we got two little boys. <laughs> Finley over here is six, and Rafe, his little brother, who's four. Um, we really struggled having children. We, we um, couldn't have children, and uh, after a long period of time, it became apparent that my wife was to blame, because... Uh, I have something called a microplactinoma. Does anyone know what that is? It's a benign brain tumor in my brain. It's not going to kill me, but it's there, and it made it meant that without medication we couldn't have children. So I am to blame. So now we've got two little lovely miracle boys, and um, we're doing a seminar on raising sons and daughters, but we don't have any daughters. So, <laughs> it, which is a great he's, sadness. He's, he's got like three sisters, so he he's really sad that he can't get to give away a daughter at the wedding. So would it be helpful just to, to ask if there's any questions about what we've just said about ourselves? We want this to be interactive as possible and not boring because this is after lunch and I know that everyone's <laughs> fallen asleep after lunch. So okay, so if there isn't any question about that, what we'll do is we will talk for a little bit and if questions come up in your mind, um, we'll have the time at the end where we can just talk it through. Is that all right? So we're talking about um, raising sons and daughters. My, my story is that um, I became uh, the leader of the eldership team in Cambridge in, at some point, five or six years ago, seven years ago. And um, things, unfortunately, had gone slightly sideways. And so as a leader, a lot of what I did in the first phase was really obvious. I mean, if you inherit a broken car, then you just fix it, don't you? And so a lot of what I was doing was so obvious that everyone just supported it. And there was no, you know, and, and so it was kind of a, a honeymoon period. And when we got to the end of a few years where everything obvious had been done, I thought, began to think to myself, I'm not sure I can do this for the next 20 years. Um, just having meetings about whether the, the band is tight. Just having meetings about whether there's enough people on the coffee rotor and if the coffee's hot. And I sort of thought to myself, in 20 years' time, I don't know if you guys ever do this, but in 20 years' time, if I look back at having done this for 20 years, I'm just going to go mad. I don't want to get down the road 20 years and say, well, the coffee was always hot and the band was always tight. Um, I started reading the New, the New Testament with new eyes. What do I have to do as a church leader? What do I have to do as a Christian? And I started seeing things slightly differently. I saw a verse that said, Paul said, he wants to present everybody mature in Christ. I thought, wow, actually as a church leader, one of my jobs is to present everyone mature in Christ. Another one in Ephesians 4 says that Christ gave gifts to the church to equip it, to equip the church 
for, to equip the saints for works of ministry. So rather than me doing ministry for 20 years, I was to equip other people to do ministry. Does that make sense? That is quite different. So we started to think about City Church and say, is this meeting on a Sunday morning designed to present everyone mature in Christ, or is it designed to grow? Is it just about adding more and more rows, have more and more people sitting down watching, and fewer and fewer people actually doing it? What about our budget? Is our budget equipped? Is it to produce maturity, or is it just about looking fancy? Who remembers this list from science class? One person. One person did science. <laughs> Love it, because I don't remember from science class either, as I said. Um, so these are the seven processes which all living things have to demonstrate. You basically, if you aren't doing this, you're not alive. Okay? So there's no complex organism on Earth that isn't exhibiting these things. And um, it's quite an interesting list. One of them stands out to me as being quite different from the others. So here I am. Actually, when I was 30, I could stand before people and say, I have to, I've, I've had to move because I had to get food and water for myself. I had to breathe. I had to be sensitive to heat and light and, light and keep myself warm. I've grown since I was a baby. Uh, there's a certain amount of excretions gone on. I've taken care of my nutrition, right? But I haven't had any babies. I'm still here, healthy. It ha so happens that we have had babies now, but I know lots of people in my church who are in their 70s and 80s. I know people in my church who are in their 70s and 80s who never had children. So it's possible for a generation to not reproduce and survive. It's not that generation which suffers. It's the following generation. And a lot of churches have failed to understand that this is different. A church can survive without reproducing itself in the first generation. But it can't survive past the first generation. Does that make sense? So raising sons and daughters is not a sort of interesting subsection of what it means to be a church. It is what it means to be a church. I really, really believe that. Of the two of us, Anna's definitely the one with the prophetic gift. And she feels God's been speaking to her. So she's going to share a little bit about how a coming revival might sort of change things for us. Is that right? Oh, you just eating a soup. <laughs> Badly timed, sorry. Badly timed. <laughs> okay. So, to keep you awake, I'm going to ask you a question. Would you or your church be able to cope with the influx of new believers if revival came? So, 
one of the prayer walks that was, took place today was a, a revival prayer walk. So we're praying for revival. So if it comes, which I believe it will, you know, would your church, would you be able to cope with it? Um, Acts, a lot of people are like, yeah, we want an Acts church. Um, and in Acts, it, you know, it, it's recorded, and the Lord added to their number daily those who have been saved. So imagine a church where every day it's growing, every day it's increasing. Could you handle that as a church? So I. Ooh. Check out how high there's different balls now. The basketball, the super bouncy ball, and the golf ball. Now I'm going to try the golf ball on top of the bouncy ball, on top of the basketball. And then I'm going to explain how it's really into a supernova. Can you see that? Probably not. So here it is again. The golf ball bounced to 28 feet. We dropped it from about three and a half feet, so it went up 800% of its dropped height. Okay. I'm a scientist, and I feel God speaks to you in a, in a language that you enjoy and understand. And I felt God speak to me through this stacked ball drop um, experiment. And the take-home message is, like um, the bouncy ball and the basketball, I felt God saying, that's what's happened before. That's previous revivals, previous moves of God. They've been like that. I felt like God was saying, you've got to prepare for that, the 800%, this golf ball. And the, the what was impressed upon my heart was just, this is unprecedented. This is unlike anything you've ever experienced. I've personally never experienced a revival. But that we, as you know, a nation, or I don't know if this is worldwide, but as ever seen, I think the Holy Spirit's going to move in a way that is unlike anything that, you know, we've encountered or read about. Um, and on the back of that was, I felt God say, so you've got to prepare and equip people. Um, I often find that in, in scripture, God repeats himself to sort of make a point. Um, and soon after I sort of heard, felt like God was speaking to me through this, I also, we went on holiday to Wells in um, Norfolk and we went crabbing. Um, and the particular time we went crabbing was at low tide. So we got all of our buckets and we got all of our different, you know, um, bait. And I think for about 45 minutes, we tried to catch a single crab. And I think we caught one between us all um, in the 45 minutes. And it was this really old, anemic looking crab. <laughs> um, and we tried different baits and we were doing everything. We just didn't understand it. Anyway, we then found out if you go at a different time of day, high tide, then things are a bit different. So we went at high tide and it must have been literally put the bucket in and about two minutes later, this bucket was, um, so this is Finn and Rafe doing this, they heaved it out and the bucket was so full that these crabs were spilling out. And I felt like God was saying, the tide is turning and soon there will be a point where even your children are going to be bringing in bucket loads of converts, fish, whatever. <laughs> um, so I just felt again, God was saying, you know, you've got to get ready, prepare and equip for what is to come. Um, so one of the two questions that we frequently ask ourselves is, you know, what is God saying? What are you going to do about it? Because I feel like if God's spoken to you, he wants you to take action because he's not going to give you the next step until you've been faithful and obedient with the first step. So I felt he was saying, you know, something big is coming, prepare and equip. So how would you prepare for something like this? 
Um, and one of the things that we really feel strongly about is, you know, Bible encourages us to make disciples. And if a church is going to suddenly have loads and loads and loads of people added daily, then they need looking after. They are people who will need mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. And let's say they were on the street and you're doing street evangelism. I don't know if this is part of what you do in the sense, but um, they've encountered God in a powerful way, but they don't really know about God. They don't know about Jesus. They don't, they will need, they'll be coming in, but they'll need to be discipled and walk through and like, what did I just experience? What is that all about? So they really need, will need everyone to take part in that because Daniel is an elder of our church. You know, if we are getting hundreds and thousands of people in our church and everyone's expecting the elders to look after all of these people, it's, he'll burn out. That's just not the way church is supposed to operate anyway. So it's something that we all need to own. Um, I see discipleship as, since we're using sort of fishing analogies, um, like a net. So a net is, you know, made up of lots of different knots with lots of different connections and together it makes a net. Um, and so if you've, you know, if you're going to have like in Luke where Jesus says, no, you know, they were fishing overnight, caught nothing, then it's like put it on the other side. And then, you know, that fishing load was so big they could hardly haul in the fish. You're going to need a strong net to keep hold of that. So I just think it's really important that all of us see this discipleship thing as including us, involving us, that we're not exempt from, that we need to do so that we can... It needs, we need to be doing this already when revival comes, so that when revival comes, it's like second nature to us. Um, but, so part of like revival is like really exciting, and part of it's like, oh my goodness, well, I'm, now I'm going to have all of these people that need to be looked after, and I still only have 24 hours in a day, and I've still got a husband to look after, I've still got two children to look after. You know, how, how am I going to do this? Um, so we really just want to... Um, press upon you that it's not about adding to your life it's about sharing it so it's not putting any more pressure on you it's just about sharing everything you do so the implication is we need to raise sons and daughters more effectively than we are so we're already feeling busy I don't know if you guys feel busy, I didn't feel busy at school because I didn't do any work (laughs) but um the more responsibilities you get, the busier you get. What, what we want to do is to be obedient to Jesus, who tells us to make disciples. But we want to do it in a natural way. So, have we made our lives too complicated to raise sons and daughters? You have countless guides in Christ, but you do not have many fathers. I'd be really interested to do a quick poll, okay? Just take a second and think to yourself, is there anyone in my church that isn't my parents that I would consider like a mother and a father to me? Okay? Put your hand up if you can say yes. That is brilliant. Put your hands down. Put your hands up if you, can, if you can't say yes. You, see, you seem reticent. There's no need to be reticent. But there are people here who feel that they can't say that. Which I'm actually encouraged by how many people put their hands up. Part of, the, part of this is that you guys are here and you're involved and you're engaged. But there may be other people for whom that isn't true. They don't have parents in, in Christ. And therefore they're not here. 
You know, they've not been encouraged, they've not been supported. Paul says you have countless guides, but not many fathers. So that leads us obviously to a loaf of bread. <laughs> Which is to say, I bought this last night in Sainsbury's for 60p. This is their cheapest London prices loaf of bread. I could get that in Cambridge for about 12 pence. Um, <laughs> right, what this, this, is, this is sold to you as food, but this is not food. What they do is they take a really amazing product, wheat, Right, and they bash it to within an inch of its life, and they strip it of its nutrients, and they snip, strip it of its vitamins, and they strip it of its fiber, and they turn it into white bread, which has no nutritional value at all. But they realize that, so then they say, we've added vitamins, ooh, and added fiber. But the whole thing is artificial. And we've done that with our Christian lives. Let me just take you through what happens. You strip it back, you take it all out, and then you have to add it back in. So if we say this is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, morning, afternoon, evening, let's say that's Sunday, okay? So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a godly man and I'm trying to lead a godly life with my godly family so I take them to church on Sunday because that's what the Bible says, do not neglect to meet together but one of my kids is a teenager so obviously he has to go to youth work so that happens on Sunday night and I lead a men's prayer meeting on Monday morning before church but I also know it's really really important to do evangelism so I go to Alpha on, on Monday night but we really want to um, do stuff with our neighbours as well so we do that uh, on whatever that night is, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And Anna wants to disciple some women, so she does that on Wednesday morning, but I also uh, am leading an eldership team, so I do that here, and we want to spend some time with our neighbours, so we do that here, and then as a family, we want to meet with other families, so we do that here. And it's like, wow. This is like, evangelism happens here, discipleship happens here, eldership meetings happen here, Sunday morning happens here. We've put everything into a silo, which means that when you try to put those things all back into 24 hours, you go mad. It can't be done. So here's, here's a big problem. Um, We've separated out evangelism from discipleship. So if I want to do evangelism, I go to Alpha. If I want to disciple my family, I do that at a different time. Wouldn't it be better to bring those things back together where they were always meant to be and pastoral care back together where it was always meant to be so that they can all happen in a shared life rather than just adding to your life. So now we think, oh yeah, we do want to have our neighbors round, because we want to evangelize them, but we also want to disciple our children. That's the same thing. Have them round with our kids there. But we also want to disciple some people in the church. Have them there as well, so they can see us evangelizing to our neighbors with our children there. And in one session, we're doing evangelism, discipleship, and pastoral care. We haven't artificially separated them and tried to fit them all into different slots. We brought them back together where it was always meant to be. Does that make sense? Like whole grain life. 
So the implication is that we need to do things more naturally. And you guys are in an exciting phase of your life because you get to choose, you get to decide, you get to design how you are going to live your life. I think that's really exciting, isn't it? Are you all under 30? No. I didn't think so. <laughs> an imposter. <laughs> Multiplication versus addition. Addition. Addition's really dangerous because addition looks good. If we had Adrian Holloway, super evangelist in our church, okay, and if he was adding a thousand people a week to our church, then the church would grow like that, wouldn't it? Every week, more people will be added. If a gifted person could add a thousand people to a church a week, how amazing would that be? But that's just addition. If everybody in my church, 300 people, added one person every week, then our chart would go like this. And we've done this over a 15-year projection. That's how multiplication works, isn't it? Two, four, eight, goes twice as big each time. So for 15 years, Adrian Holloway would look better than us. But if we could get to this point, then bam, it goes crazy. Okay, I need a volunteer, quick, one person. Go, quick, come on then, up front. You're a pastor, okay? Okay. Okay, so let's say this person has a, a pastoral gift. Now I want the front two rows to come and grab one of these balloons. Come and grab one of these balloons. And just, just stay where you are. If, if the pastor comes over here, this will probably be quickest. Okay, just stay where you are with your balloon, right? And uh, you're, just make sure everyone's got a balloon. Your balloon is your pastoral problem, okay? Everyone has one. And we've got a pastor here. So why don't you come and give your pastoral problem to the pastor? Come on, give her as many of your problems as you can. She has to hold them. Oh no, she's got a system. <laughs> if you've done ministry, you know how long systems are. <laughs> <laughs> Someone threw one. <laughs> okay, you're struggling. You're already struggling. This is the first time I've ever done this, and she's actually managed it. I think. You've dropped a few. If I was to get the rest of you to come and get the rest of the pastoral problems are given to her, at some point it would break, wouldn't it? At some point she would not be able to do it. So when we did it in here with a hundred people trying to give a hundred balloons to one person, that's just not going to work, is it? Adding to her workload breaks. Does that make sense? Okay, you can have, have sit down now. What we need to do is multiply. So what's your name? Faith. Faith. If Faith was, was the pastor in your church and she thought to herself, I know I can't carry all these things. If she then spent, say, 75% of her time not pastoring, but raising pastors, then when pastoral problems come, she can say, give them to these other people that I have raised up, I have multiplied. That's scalable, isn't it? That can keep going. 
we have to pay the price to multiply because every gift should be multiplying itself, not just practicing the gift. You will find, when I, was, when I became the leader of the church, the lead, leader of the leadership team, someone said to me, you need to be preaching 75% of the time or more. I was just like, there's absolutely no way I'm doing that. I preach 25% of the time or less. The reason I do that is because I need to raise up other preachers. And if I'm always preaching, I can't raise up other preachers. But I spend more, and it's easy for me to preach, okay? Because I know myself, I know my system, I, I know what I'm doing. For me to slow right down and take someone who's a baby preacher and encourage them and shape them and take them through a process is really slow and long. And then when they get up there, they do a job that isn't as good as the one that I could do because I'm experienced. But that doesn't make it wrong. Does that make sense? So if Faith was being an effective pastor, what she should be doing is raising up other pastors. And that means that she can do less pastoring herself. Or think of it another way, she's pastoring pastors. So we must give ourselves to multiplication. Paul said, the things you heard me say to you entrust to reliable people who will be able to teach others. So there's four generations in this one verse. What's going to be the impact of your life on the generations to come? What's your legacy going to be? I just want to really quickly uh, address an elephant in the room, which is that I think Christians have been sold a lie which basically amounts to winning the lottery. We're going to have a time of ministry now. Come forward, bam, and you will get it, whatever it is. You cannot impart maturity. Agreed? You can impart encouragement, faith, you can stand with someone through a hard time. You can see miraculous healing. You can see miraculous healing of the soul, healing of the mind, healing of relationships. You can have moments of prophetic words coming. You can have someone making powerful decisions. But you cannot put 30 years of faithful living into someone's heart and life in an instant. We need to wake up and smell the coffee, okay? If you want 30 years of faithful living, you're going to have to live faithfully for 30 years to get it. You're not going to get that by coming forward in a meeting. So, Anna, Anna's been to lots and lots of situations where she's been encouraged prophetically in her prophetic gift. Sometimes people say to those people on the stage who are doing amazing things, you know, I want what you've got. It's like, well, yeah. You might want what I've got, but are you willing to do what I've done? Because I can pray for you to receive a gift, but I cannot pray for you to receive the maturity that goes along with practicing that gift faithfully. And it's the same in all these different areas of life. You just cannot cheat nature. So we need to raise sons and daughters 
who raise sons and daughters, multiplying like Paul did, second, third, fourth generation. Okay, Anna's just going to talk a little bit to us about walking with people, not just talking to them. Now you might feel like, hey, wait a minute, I'm only in my 20s, I'm, the, I'm then still in the creche part of church life, I'm still in the creche part of Christianity. No, you're not. You need to be doing this stuff. When I was 17, I was having prayer meetings in my house with other people, 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds, every week. Let's read the Bible together, let's pray, I'm, I'm going to disciple you. But even if that's not true, because we all have different gifts, this is how you can draw on other people who are older than you in the church. Okay? I'm not going to... Preaching is really important, but it's not sufficient. Worship is really important, but it's not sufficient. Sunday mornings are really important, but they're not sufficient. And we need to realize that. So you need someone in your life who you can say, I want to walk with you, not just talk to you or be talked to. Thanks. Um, I can't remember where, this is kind of tying it with what Daniel was saying, but you know the expression, uh, feed a man a fish and you'll feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you'll feed him for a lifetime. But I think the best one is teach a man to teach a man to fish and you feed the village. So what you're always doing is you're trying to sort of teach others to teach others. And so you're always being raised up, but you're always raising up simultaneously. Um, so another question to keep you nice and wide awake. What is the weakest aspect of our disciple making effort? So that's for you to think about. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What was your main point with that one again? Well, I found myself on a Sunday morning preaching 350 people saying, as Paul did, you know how I lived when I was amongst you. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, they don't. They know how I live when I'm preaching in front of them and I've got my Sunday vest on and I've got my sermon notes and you can't ask me any questions. You know how I live then. But you don't know how I live when I've got road rage or when we get overdrawn or when I've been woken up in the night for the fourth time or when I think it's Anna's turn to do the washing up. And it's not possible. It's not possible for 350 people to know that about one person. So something has broken in the church for that to be true. We need to be able to say, okay, you might not know how I live every second of my life, but you know how other believers live. Does that make sense? And you are accountable to one another. So we need to move past just information to actual examples. How do you do it? Um, so there are three different ways of um, teaching and learning. Are you familiar with any of this? Yeah. So you have classroom style where it's someone, one person normally at the front teaching to a lot of people and it's quite a unidirectional kind of information impartation because it's like you, I just tell you stuff and you don't really have a chance much to sort of ask me anything back. Then you have apprenticeship, which is sort of one-on-one, -on -one, so you have a bit more interaction going on. And then you have immersion, where you're um, immersed in, in something. So for example, um, I mentioned at the beginning that um, we traveled around a lot as a family um, when we were younger. And so what I noticed with my parents is that their approach was beforehand, um, before moving into a country, let's say Nepal, um, 
they would go and get one of those like um, how to speak Nepalese books and they would try and learn from a book how to speak Nepalese and maybe they'd go to a class and listen sort of how to do the dialogue or whatever. If they're lucky they'd actually find my dad would have like a work colleague who was Nepalese himself and he'd be able to say yeah this is the culture over there, this is what you do, um, this, is, this is what you don't do, that kind of thing. On an aside, my mum got a translation thing wrong and told this man once that he was a, fa- uh, a female castrated goat. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that's nothing to do with this, but anyway, it just reminds me that it's quite funny. Um, but then, so that, that's, that's sort of the apprenticeship of what they'd go to. And then, but what the real impact was that when they were actually there in the country where people surrounding them were talking it, they could see the culture, they could see what dynamics were going on, they could ask questions, they were making mistakes. But you need all three. So it was, it, all of them were important, all of them prepared, but you really, really need all three. And I'd say church is very good at the classroom style of things, but I wouldn't say necessarily that we're equally as good in the rest of it, the apprenticeship and the immersion. Um, then I said that I, I love the prophetic, I um, really want to grow in it, um, and so one of the ways that I, you know, the Bible says eagerly desire the gift of prophecy, um, so one of the ways that I thought I'll eagerly desire this and fan into flame was I, I read lots of books on the prophetic. We tried to work out how many. I think it was something like 50 or something. It was a crazy amount. But that was all head knowledge. That was just understanding it and having head knowledge. Um, then someone in our church um, called Angela Kem. Do you know if you know Angela? Yeah, lots of nuns. She's awesome. She, she came alongside me and she said, look, I'd love for you to come along with me to things and um, just ask me questions. She's always like, questions, questions, come on. Um, but seeing her in action, watching her, what she did, um, that was, again, that was so valuable to me. And what I really noticed about her is she was like, well, I have to go two hours on, in the car to this place. Come with me. And it was actually the car journey ride there and back, which was really, really valuable because... Not only because I was like, I understanding more about Angela, what was her history, how she come about, you know, this whole um, wisdom and years and years and years of maturity. She's gone through loads and loads of stuff. I was like, understanding, you know, how her mistakes that she's made, what, you know, she doesn't want, she would say, don't do this or whatever. Um, and then I would see her in action and then she would be able to say, ask me questions, you know, what, does anything that didn't make sense to you? And I'm like, why did you do this? How do you, like, and, and then she would make me do it. She'd be like, okay, now you do it. And then she'd give me feedback and then I'd be petrified. But um, it was all part of like sharpening and growing and, um, being shaped and then what she also did was she was like okay well we're going to get other people who also have prophetic gift and you know you're all going to be together and you're all going to learn and then it was like okay I'm understanding the language of how do you how do you say things how do you not say things like I like what he did but that was a bit weird and and you sort of being in the culture you sort of grow even more so just want to sort of say that you know even though we're great at in church as a classroom site, we need to do more of this apprenticeship immersion in order to really grow people to have these mature people. Um, so here, implication, we need to raise sons and daughters who know, that's head knowledge, um, and have experienced in their heart. So they need to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in their head, but also having lived it out with other people.
This can't, this can't be done from a distance. You can't phone it in. So we don't want disciples who are just students, academic students. Paul said, you know how I lived and I was with you. This is a little formula that we use to try and assess whether something's working or not. Powerful lives added to a shared life, plus the clear communication it takes to talk about it, equals maximum impact. If you're sharing your life, but you're not really following Jesus, then you're not really full of power. That's not really a life that anyone wants to copy. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The only way you can do that is if you're up close to someone. So we try to be brutally honest with the church and with the people that we're discipling. We try to give permission to be yourself and to ask anything and to express anything. When we had very, very young children, I was finding it hard work. I was under pressure at work, being up six or seven times a night. After a few months of that, six months, seven months, I was starting to lose perspective. I remember saying in a sermon once, I know what it feels like to be holding a screaming child and to be really, really close to hurting it because you are so desperate. And how in those moments I was so pleased to be able to have a wife, to have a wife that I could give my child to and say, take this child away from me before I do something I regret. If you're a single parent, I take my hat off to you because you don't have that option. Someone came up to me later and said, I was amazed when you said that in your service because this guy's brother had just killed his own child and none of the family could understand how it was possible. So to hear someone saying it is possible gave them permission to talk about it. And then later he had his own children. Five or six years later he came up to me again or three or four years later and said, I've actually been there. And just giving people permission to talk about it and, and, and not having a pretense, like this is real life. This is how we spend our money. This is how we make our decisions. Anna was working at the University of Cambridge amongst lots of PhDs, totally hostile to Christianity. If she talked about the resurrection of Jesus, everyone just absolutely laughed. Then one day one of her colleagues was getting married. Her future husband was giving 50 pounds a month to charity and she just couldn't believe that. It was such a stupid waste of money. What was this person thinking? And Anna said, well, actually, this is what we do with our money. She began to tell her colleagues how much we give. And the whole department goes silent. People can argue with what you believe. They can't argue with how you live. But people don't know how you live unless you share your life with them. So you guys need to start sharing your life with people, but you also need to start finding people in your church who will share their lives with you. And do whatever it takes. We had a couple want to come and speak to us, and I said, we're really, really busy. We do want to speak to you. So the only way it's going to work is if you come to our house and you cook for us. If you come to our house, you bring the food, you cook for us, we'll hang out. And they did. So it's like it doesn't have to be a massive production. We need to raise sons and daughters who truly know how and why we live our lives the way we do. Uh, the last idea, and then we'll take some questions, is just to 
make sure that we don't try and build a cosy culture, but we actually move to challenge. Okay? It's possible to put on a conference and to have the greatest speaker who moves in the power of God, and lots of people travel huge distances and spend huge amounts of money on hotels and petrol and tickets, and come to this conference and have a wonderful experience, and then go away into the nether-nether and have no accountability and no ongoing relationship. They've been cozied, but not followed through. Jesus made disciples by saying, follow me, come and live with me, see how I do it, I will make you fishers of men. So there's a big challenge. We use this grid, if you've got high relationship, but no challenge, that's really cozy, isn't it? That's what you do with kids. You pick them up and you cuddle them and you keep them safe, okay? They, then nothing's expected of them, really. Lots of churches are like that. Or what about if there's no challenge but there's no relationship? That's just really boring. Come here, we're not at all interested in you, but on the other hand, we won't ask you to do anything. Or over here, which is maybe like you get these two things in the same church sometimes. 80% of the church is bored, the other 20% is really stressed because they're on every rotor and they're doing absolutely everything, but there's no relationship because they don't have time for it. Who's been there? Jesus did it up here. Yeah, come with me. I will make you fishers of men. Get behind me, Satan, he said to his friend Peter. I mean, that's a challenge, isn't it? A friend of mine who's a very, very intellectual guy, first from Oxford, would read 10 or 12 blogs every single day as well as his work. He's a professional writer. He said, Daniel, I'm just going absolutely crazy. On any given issue, I'm, I know every single person's opinion, every single school of thought, and I'm just going mad. <coughs> I said, my friend, you are a narcissist. You're totally in love with yourself. You are reading all of these blogs because you want to be the smartest person in the room on any subject at any given time, and that's just totally unsustainable. You want to know everything about everything, and it's driving you mad. You need to get some convictions and start having some belief about what the Bible says. Because if the Bible isn't true, this is all for nothing. And he says that's a that was a turning point in his life, when someone actually stood up to him and said, stop being so interested in yourself and your own opinions and your own reputation and start following Jesus. Does that make sense? But we had masses of relationship. I could do that on the basis that we're friends and I knew our friendship would survive, just like Jesus knew his friendships with Peter would survive. Lots of people feel disengaged with church because they're not engaged with church. Like, I often, as a church leader, have someone come to me and say, I'm really feeling slightly on the edge of things. All oh, right, well, tell me about your small group. I don't go to small group. Okay, well, I am feeling on the edge. All right, okay. Tell me about where you serve. Oh, I don't serve. Okay. All right, so tell me about your giving. I don't give. Right, so you don't come, you don't give, you don't serve, you don't participate, and you're feeling on the edge. Of course you're on the edge. You know, that's not, that is actually where you are. So, of course you feel like that. But it's good to have this conversation because you need to make a decision now. Do you want to get involved or do you want to move on? But lots of people just stay in that never, never all the time. So we need to really think carefully 
about how we're living our lives and how you guys live your lives and what you expect of the churches that you are part of and you are planting. You have got the opportunity to either do it the way we've always done it or to say the Bible talks about presenting everyone mature in Christ. Am I maturing myself? Am I helping other people to mature? The Bible talks about making disciples. Am I a disciple? Am I making disciples? Or am I just sitting on the back row with my feet up? And you've got a part to play in shaping the next generation as well as being shaped by the generation above you. I bet if you went to some of the older people in your church, people that you had a soft spot for, said, please can I hang out? They'd say, yeah. There's a lady in our church. We've got this small group system which is like basically have an idea people can sign up for that idea. So her idea is I'm going to be knitting in my shed at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday morning. If you want to come and hang out with me and ask me questions, you can. They do. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Who wants to sit there and just talk? Wow, we've done a lot. We've gone a long way. We've been super, super practical. I hope you don't mind that because I think generally we've got a lot of good theology, but we need to just make sure that we're putting into practice as helpfully as possible. And it's been our genuine experience that this has been a big issue. We've changed, we've changed a two million pound building project because of our desire to make disciples. So it's really having an impact on our lives. We've got a few minutes left. Are there any questions or anything you guys want to challenge or probe or just ask us about? Now's your chance. Um, what you were saying about like how Rather than going, here's why this one thing gets to be mixed all together. I'm just trying to think of like practicalities of like how planned is that, how spontaneous is that. Do you have an open door policy, or do you have to be protective about your family at certain times? How do you walk between like open door, guarded, spontaneity, and well, you've got to have a really, really clear grasp of the gospel. Okay, Jesus saved me. I'll tell the story. We were experiencing some serious opposition at church, really, really sustained. And at one point it was getting a bit too much for us. And Anna said to me as I walked out the door one day, I just so you know, eight o'clock in the morning as I get onto a train, please don't repeat this Anna. Just so you know, Daniel, I hate being an elder's wife. So my whole vocation has just been chopped off because my wife's experiencing some pressure. And I get onto the train that day thinking, God is good. My heart didn't miss a beat because my reasons for rejoicing are that Jesus loves me, that he died for me, and that he rose again, and that he's coming again, and none of that has changed. So I'm totally happy in God. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not unaware of this difficulty, but I'm totally happy in God. So I think, say, I need to protect my family. God will protect your family. I mean, you have a part to play in that, but ultimately, you've got to have a real conviction that the gospel is utterly powerful, then any decision you make will be gospel-based, grace-based. And I think that does mean you're allowed to make some boundaries. So we, we just know, the Bible says, know yourself. Consider yourself with sober judgment. So we say to people, we'd really love to have you come round between seven o'clock and nine o'clock because we want to go to bed at 9.01. <laughs> so we just make it really, really clear. But there are some people 
And on the other hand, I would happily get up at four o'clock in the morning, and I almost, I, I regularly do get up at four o'clock in the morning. Everyone is different. But it's okay to know yourself and to put boundaries into place and to say, I know a friend of ours, Paul McConaughey, says, please come into our house whenever we're having a meal, anybody can come for an hour. So you, if you turn up, if their kids turn up with their friends, they are welcome, but an hour will kick them out. We'll do it nicely. So I think you need to, you need to, Paul says, I count it loss. I have reckoned such and such. He was often thinking about, I've gone through a process where I've said, this is what I want. I want a community and this is what it will cost. So for example, Anna's, Anna, when she was working, was earning more than me, substantially more than me. And if she was to work now, she'd be earning substantially more than me. When we had children, we had to decide, do we want money or do we want her to be with the children? We decided we'd rather have her with the children. So for us, we counted the cost. That means we're not going to have a big house. We're not going to have holidays. But we are going to be with the kids. And we're cool with that. Does that make sense? Paul says, I've counted it cost. I, I counted it wrong. You have to go through that process. Say, so we've decided this. Yeah, of course it means we'll lose the money. But it means we'll gain the time. So you need to go through a process, I guess, where you're thinking in your life, what are the things where we can, we've artificially separated it and we can bring it back? And, and how would we practice that? One way we've done it is we've just said, we always have a meal on Tuesdays. We always have a meal every day. <laughs> but we always have a meal on Tuesday when nothing else is going on. So why don't we always make Tuesday the night we will always invite someone over. It won't just let it happen. We will make it happen. We're going to eat anyway. So we're not adding anything extra. And it's not fancy. So they're just coming along for beans on toast. And, and another sort of great example of multiplying is that we say to the boys sometimes, who are six and four, you guys need to learn to cook, you need to learn to be hospitable, you need to look, learn to care for people, so you're in charge of the meal tonight. Okay, so you're four years old, what do you want to make? I want to make hot dogs. Okay, well let's open this tin, okay, put it on the plate, that's a hot dog. So we've actually had meals where we sat down at the table with an empty plate and a cold hot dog. <laughs> but they have done it. Yeah? I mean, we all go, oh, that's really lovely. But when someone gets up and does a really naff sermon, we're like, hey! you know, that's a cold hot dog on an empty plate. But that person is learning, aren't they? We need to like slow way, way down and say, if, if Finn and Rafe are going to learn to be hospitable, they're going to need to start somewhere. And it's lovely to be able to show people that way of living and to also include our kids in taking care of them. But it's also okay to say, and you need to leave at nine o'clock. We do sometimes even have to, you know. We do come out. Yeah, at some points you just say, look, we've talked about nine o'clock and it is nine o'clock, so you, you need to go now. <laughs> but that's fine, you know, it's not because we don't like you, it's just because we need to go to bed because we're going to go crazy otherwise. Should we do one more question, then we'll stop. I have a question about sort of the shared lives. Mm -hmm. So, is there situations where that becomes really obvious that that's where you should share? Because isn't there a stage where that's just bragging? I think like the money was a really oh. tough one um, to say without coming across worse than you know. You just, I mean, I think being gospel-centered really helps with that because you're not bragging. No. 
Um, I honestly think most of most of what we share with other people is our failures, and that's not. We don't want to be a pity. It's not a pity party, but it's like an empathy. I really get that because we've had this experience. Um, and I think I don't think you can always empathise. You can't match like for like. If a woman comes up to me and says, "I had a miscarriage," I can't say, "Oh, I had a miscarriage as well." Let's let's talk about that because that will never be true. But I do know what it's like to have a loss, to be bereaved. So you can come along. And the other thing about the shared life is just part of it is just setting an example. Be authentic. Live an authentic life. That is a shared life. But if they want specifics, they will often ask for it, and then you've got permission. So someone said, came around to us, us recently and said, we want to ask you to challenge us about our plans to have more kids. And we're like, wow, I would never go there unless you asked us. But now that you've asked us, here's five or six challenges. Here's things you really need to think about because we've got concerns. We're not saying don't do it, because you have to decide. But if you're asking for our input, here's what we've learned. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So it's got to be gospel-centered. It's 99% of it is just by example. And the other tricky 1% is actually by invitation anyway. Okay. If you just go into someone's life and say, oh, I see you're doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. I've learned that you should be doing this. They're not going to hear it anyway. But in the section of sort of saying you need to challenge people to give up serving, yeah. that's kind of a, I'm chef, I'm serving, therefore you should... You know, that's, that's one of the, potentially one of the situations where they're not going to ask you necessarily, no. where can I serve? Well, I would never, I mean, I've given you like a tweet version of a conversation. Yeah. I would never say it like that. They're, if someone's expressing, I'm feeling like this, and you know why they're feeling like this, you're just trying to get them to see why they're feeling like that. But you need to do it in a way that's encouraging, mm-hmm. not discouraging. Goff Hope, one of the most helpful things Goff Hope said to me was this. He says, if you push people, you'll get friction. That makes sense, doesn't it? But if you pick them up, you can take them with you. Okay? If you push people, you'll get friction. You need to serve, because I'm serving. That's not going to work. But if, you, but if you think, if you pick them up, I've really noticed you're absolutely amazing with the down and outs that come. Have you ever considered growing in that? So there's a way to, you're not trying to manipulate people, you're trying to say, I know why you're feeling like that, I'm trying to get you to see why you're feeling like that and help you grow from it. Right, brilliant, thank you so much. It's time for us to end. We're gonna go home and sleep, I think. (laughs) We've got to get back to Richmond, so (laughs) right across town. Because this is London, we thought, oh, we'll stay in, like, we'll stay in Richmond, because that's right next door to Houston, slash an hour away. <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks so much. I hope you have a great rest of your...